you have single-handedly changed our family because of mastermind because i felt safe enough and realized with your help realized that it's not just about the picking up of the toys and the back talk and the productive conversation scripts it's not about that it's about healing myself and becoming a better version of myself and showing up and being able to be that way for my entire family I really credit you with doing something that I literally have not been able to do with countless therapists and all the journaling and all the thinking and all the meditating and all the things. It was because of you. So thank you for helping heal what I thought was unhealable. My name is Randy Rubenstein, and welcome to the Mastermind Parenting Podcast. At Mastermind Parenting, we're on a mission to support strong-willed kids and the families that love them. Hi, everyone. I'm here with the beautiful Dr. Sarah Miller, as my brother and my brother-in-law, Jared, like to call her because she is now their doctor <laughs> as well as mine. Sarah did a residency in – I didn't even know this until you just mentioned this recently on that panel where you did a residency in internal family medicine and in pediatrics. You did a double residency. I did, yes. What in the ever-living fuck? I mean, <laughs> is this the way overachievers just live? Like <laughs> – it's true. I mean, at <laughs> Baylor? Both of them at Baylor? Yeah, it was a combined program. So the group of us did two residencies, and we would alternate. So not only was it wasn't even just back-to-back, -back, like peds residency and then internal medicine residency. We would do three months of pediatrics and then switch into three months of internal medicine and three months of pediatrics and then three months of internal medicine. So it was a constant uh, mind switch and juggle and constant mind yeah. fuckery. <laughs> it's a good thing I have some weird sense of I don't even know if it's self-confidence or maybe it's just self-acceptance of my underachieverness. <laughs> Cuz I I I'd be like, "Woo, I got into medical school." I got, "Oh, what? I got a residency." Like the whole double thing. <laughs> that kind of blew my mind, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> NGL, NGL as my kids like to say, not going to lie. Okay, so this month I wanted Sarah to come on and for those of you who are used to watching our conversations via YouTube, guess what? We don't have the video this time because this is a case of two women who are really good at a lot of things in our lives and we are not <laughs> the best with technology. And so there's been just like an issue in terms of us recording and it being the right sound quality. So we just decided that we're on the good enough model and we're kicking it old school podcast style, only audio. But I wanted to have Sarah on because Sarah invited me to a luncheon where she's been very involved in this school called the Rise School, this beautiful school that's near and dear to her heart. And I went to the luncheon last year. This year, I did not go to the luncheon. And when Sarah invited everyone this year to sit at her table, she shared a speech because she was one of the speakers years ago at the Rise School 
as a parent who sent her kids to this school. And she wrote this beautiful speech and I read it and I said, well, this speech needs to be read on the podcast and we need to, we're not even discussing it until you come on the podcast and then we're going to discuss it there. So how was the luncheon this year? It was lovely. It was lovely. Um, So there's always a speaker and then an adorable fashion show from a bunch of the kids. There was a speaker who was a mom. This is my first year where I'm just far enough removed from when my kids were there that I don't know as many of the parents. And so it was a mom's story who I didn't know. It was really moving, really amazing. What is the Rise School? Like, how did it come to be? And uh, tell us a little bit about the Rise School. So the Rise School is a preschool for kids to be integrated into classrooms together who are typically developing and other kids who have who are born with some developmental disabilities, mainly Down syndrome, because the founders, their grandson had Down syndrome. And so I would say most of the kids with the developmental disability, that's what they're coming into the school with, but they actually accept kids with a whole variety. And the goal is to support all these kids in the classrooms together. So they learn from each other. It's an inclusion model and all kids learn how to thrive together. They learn from each other and it's really, really beautiful. So your kids are typical developing and you sent them to this school because you were so impressed with this school after you took a tour of it when you were in residency. I don't want to blow your speech. Yes. So maybe we should just start with you reading the speech because that kind of tells your story, right? Yes. I was asked to speak at the luncheon a couple of years ago because we have been one of the few families who sent their kids, typically developing kids there who didn't otherwise have a connection to the school, like either a child of a teacher or sibling. A lot of the typically abled kids are the siblings of kids who go there because people just don't know about about this Um, or they don't have the the vision to see how they could benefit from it um, without having, you know, a kid who has, you know, any special needs. So they asked me to speak about that because of my unique perspective. Now there are more and more families, but still not many in our same circumstance. And the interesting thing is the school, there's a huge waiting list for kids with Down syndrome to get in. I mean, you have to call, you know, when baby is still in utero to get on the waiting list. But for typically abled kids that you're able to really mostly get in right away. And that's really the limiting factor for the school to grow because the point of it is to have almost 50-50 in each classroom, typically abled kids and kids with a developmental disability, and you can't grow the school if you don't have more typically abled kids to include. So I'm, I've been passionate about telling people about it. Well, I think this is, you know, and and maybe that is always where our conversations are going to go or what the point is. I just kind of follow my intuition. But maybe that is what this episode is mostly going to be about, is just educating people on why you would even consider sending your kids to a school where they are typically abled. Is that the correct term? Mm -hmm. The only term I try to avoid is normal because it's like normal. That's like what rolls off the tongue. So sometimes it sounds awkward, but I just try to come up with a term that is. Well, I've been, I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot of people who fall in the neurodiverse category talk about Mm -hmm. ableism. Yep. 
Yeah. And what just popped into my head is, you know, if you've ever known anyone or if any of your kids have ever done like a Spanish immersion program at a school, when you go into a Spanish immersion program and English is your first language. And so you want your kids to learn how to be fluent in Spanish, right? In that class, there's a certain number of spots for kids where English is their first language. And there's a certain number of spots for kids where Spanish is their first language. And they, as I understand it, I might, I think I'm getting this right, but like they combine these two populations because I guess the idea is that you have the kids learning in Spanish and because the kids that where Spanish is their first language, where they become classmates and peers with kids that English is their first language, the Spanish speakers become better English speakers and the English speakers become more fluent in Spanish. Mm-hmm. That's how I understand it. And it sort of seems like maybe like this is kind of that same model where when you're combining these two populations of kids, they're all learning from each other. And mm-hmm. so they all, so it's this very collaborative sort of experiential way of learning, which I think is really cool. And it makes total sense because I don't think I ever really understood why, you know, at me just coming from that privilege of my kids being neurotypical for the most part, besides two out of three of them having the highly sensitive nervous <laughs> systems. But for the most part, they they seem to be neurotypical or by mainstream standards. Like why would I want them in a class with kids that have Down syndrome or autism? And so I think that your perspective here, it helped me to understand why it would be so important and how mm-hmm. my kids would also benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of our close family didn't understand at the time either. So I think it's very normal to to not quite get it. It's not the norm. And the thing I'll say is, is like my daughter grew up where she had a very good friend who was in a car accident when he was in third grade and, and, and then he was in an, a wheelchair. Um, he's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life um, unless – something miraculous happens. And she grew up in a very, you know, small school and the kids were all really close. And this boy was, had been like the star athlete and the fastest runner and the best baseball player. And then all of a sudden he was in a wheelchair. And so they grew up where by the time they, these kids were in high school, they did, she would tell me, she's like, yeah, we don't even see the chair. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they were seniors and they were going and they were renting this house, like it was this whole thing um, down for the weekend. A bunch of them were, you know, there was a couple of moms that were there and the kids were renting a house as seniors. And and those houses down in Galveston where the beach is, that's the beach town near Houston, a lot of them are way up on these stilts. And so there's a million stairs going up. And I remember mm-hmm. asking her, I was like, well, if Peter's coming do y'all need to make sure that like it's wheelchair accessible? And she was like, no, 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 it's not a big deal. Cause his cousin was in the same grade and she's like all the guys, they all get together and Noah kind of leads the charge and you know, Noah will just carry Peter up. Like they just figure it out. It's, it's, it's really, we don't even consider that. It's not mm-hmm. a big deal. Like the kids all rallied around. They, they, like they didn't see the chair and they also were all aware that 
if there was a bunch of stairs, like they'd figure it out and Peter right. would figure it out. And like, it just was never going to be a hindrance. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's so cool. You know, <laughs> like it's been such this inclusive model that they just mm-hmm. like, they just saw beyond the chair and they see beyond, yeah. you know, what the rest of society might see as, you know, the first impression. And kids just need the opportunity to be put in the environment where they can do that. When we pull separate kids out in classrooms and schools and just don't give the opportunity, then a child may never be exposed to it and get the opportunity to, you know, include others. Sometimes we just um, don't have the foresight to put them together. Mm -hmm. It's so Okay. Read the speech. I want to, I want everyone to hear it. So good. Okay. Here we go. I'd like to begin with an excerpt from the book, Hector the Collector by Emily Beanie. It all began with an acorn. It was smooth and brown with a rough knobbly cap, and Hector found it in a crack on the sidewalk on the way to school. At recess, he found two more. One was skinny and green. The other was short and chubby, like an old man with his hat pulled over his eyes. On the way home, he picked up some more. Two were as green as apples. Two were brown and grainy like wood. One was golden and smooth like polished stone. Some were round, some were long, some were stubby. They all had rough, knobbly caps. Our Rise School story started when I was a first-year internal medicine and pediatrics resident at Baylor College of Medicine. I toured Rise as part of our community resources rotation to learn more about places where we could refer parents of children with Down syndrome or other developmental disabilities. I remember first being struck by the warm, supportive environment. Every teacher, every staff member knew every child's name and were literally cheering them on as they walked the halls. During just four hours there, I saw small milestones accomplished and celebrated. I saw teachers listening intently to what their kids were communicating, verbally or non-verbally. And when perhaps a child wasn't yet communicating his needs well, his teachers looked right into his eyes, acknowledged his feelings, and spoke directly to him. When you walk into RISE, you feel valued. Then, of course, I observed inclusion in the classrooms. Every child was participating in the same activities with the same expectations. They greeted each other, played, ate, danced, did art projects, cried, grabbed each other's toys and melted down, then got right back up again and learned about the world right alongside each other. It was very special. My take-home message from spending the day at this incredible school was, yes, that I would certainly refer children with Down syndrome, but more than that, I wanted to refer every child. I wanted my future children to go here, to be given the opportunity to experience a school and an environment like this in their most formative years. So fast forward three years later, and we enrolled our 18-month-old, typically developing son, Elliot. He attended until he was five years old, graduated from RISE, and is now in first grade at Horn Elementary. Our second son, Gideon, started at six months and is now four years old and currently attending RISE. Most of the typically developing kids are either siblings or children of teachers. We were one of the first families with no other connection to RISE, 
though since that time this number has steadily grown. There's a very long waiting list for families of kids with Down syndrome to get a spot, and my dream is that one day there will be a longer one for typically developing kids. What I have gained and learned from our now seventh year at RISE is more than I could have ever imagined. I started my boys at RISE so that they could not only thrive developmentally from the one-on-one -on -one instruction, support, and incredible resources RISE offers, but so that they could learn acceptance, understanding, inclusion, and empathy. And through RISE, I was given the gift of what this truly looks like in our world. First, they did learn acceptance. They are in a peer group of kids at RISE with a million differences. Elliot's first love was Mara B, a little girl with Down syndrome. He brought her a bouquet of roses at their RISE graduation. Maya wears glasses. Ben used a walker and communicated with an iPad. They were also taught by teacher assistants with developmental disabilities. Gideon was rocked to sleep at nap time for an entire year by Allie, a teaching assistant with Down syndrome. But acceptance didn't look like how I imagined it would. I thought it would be Elliot or Gideon entering elementary school and being the kid who sees someone left out and invites him into the group or sees the kid who's different and goes up to talk to him. Well, this year in first grade, the mom of a little boy in Elliot's class who has autism and albinism texted me to say that Max kept coming home and telling her that Elliot was his best friend. Now, Elliot had barely even mentioned Max to me. And so I asked Elliot about Max and he gave me the typical first grade response to any question I ask about school, a shoulder shrug and a, yeah. But in that moment, I finally understood. It's not that Elliot accepted or understood Max's differences. He didn't see him as different. Max saw Elliot as his best friend, not because Elliot went out of his way to talk to him or do things for him, but because Elliot treated him like every other kid. At recess, he tagged him out. At lunch, he sat next to him if there was an open seat. And if Max bugged him or took his stuff, Elliot told on him. They were equals and they were friends. They were all different. They were all the same. They were all beautiful. Elliot and Gideon also received acceptance at RISE. When I describe my kids with the politically correct term, typically developing, I mean, what does that even mean? Every child has their own challenges, their own set of strengths and weaknesses. Elliot has always struggled with anxiety and flexibility and difficulty reading social cues. We searched for a diagnosis for a period of time and had terms thrown around like sensory processing disorder, ADHD, and highly sensitive child. But we finally stopped searching and just diagnosed him with being him. And he is now absolutely thriving in first grade, due in full to our time at the Rice School. At two years old in Yellow Room, when he was going around hitting everybody, his teacher, Carol, identified that he just didn't know how to say hi and taught him how to greet a friend. At four years old in green room, when Elliot had difficulty transitioning during school pickup and would have an epic meltdown 
and run the other way when I arrived every single day for at least six months, Doris would hold his hand, get him on his feet, and gently repeat, you're safe, you're calm, you can do this. You're safe, you're calm, you can do this, as she walked him to my car. And at five years old, during his final year in Purple Room, there are no words that could effectively convey my gratitude for how Jolanda gently, yet firmly, expertly, and with humor and joy, pushed Elliot to face his fears, built his confidence, and allowed him to blossom into a kid you would not even recognize walking the halls. Imagine if all kids could be valued in this way, their behavior viewed with positive intent, never labeled, never excluded, never a call to go home because of acting up or hitting or, or even potentially getting kicked out of preschool. It would change the landscape of our educational system and of our world. They were all different. They were all the same. They were all beautiful. And finally, I received acceptance at RISE. I was gifted a community of moms from whom I have learned so much. When I started my boys at RISE, it was for them and their future success. And as we all are, as moms, I was so focused on my kids, it didn't even cross my mind that I too might get something out of this experience. But I was welcomed into an unexpected family. We support each other, celebrate wins together, and commiserate together. The mom of a baby with Down syndrome wasn't handpicked to care for that child because she's full of infinite patience. We all struggled. We all question every decision of every moment of every day. We are all trying to make it out the door every morning. We're all racing in with lunches and nap mats and one shoe and trying to raise happy, healthy kids. They were all different. They were all the same. They were all beautiful. And honestly, sometimes I felt like the outsider, like the imposter. But then there are our friends who have come to us over the years and thanked me because without us, their kid wouldn't be the same. But the beauty of it is, without them, my kids wouldn't be the same. And I'll finish with another quote from Hector the Collector. Every collection tells a story about the things in it and about the person or people who brought those things together. Every collection is different. Every collection is the same just like all of us. Mm. I mean, that's why we had to read it here. <laughs> I haven't that's read why. that out loud since that speech. <laughs> My kids are now 11 and 8, so fifth grade and second grade. Mm. I mean, when you said it was like, and I teach this to all the moms in my mastermind where I'm like, you can have boundaries. So Sarah sends this and I was like, Sarah, I love you. And no, I'm not coming to the luncheon, but I read your speech and I love it so much. Can we please read it on the podcast? Yeah. Uh, you're, see you guys, you're, you're learning even more here that you can, you can say, no, I don't want to go to your right? luncheon. And we're still friends and I'm on the podcast. And we're still friends. You're allowed to own it. When you don't make up excuses, when you don't lie, when you just tell the truth to yeah. your friend and you let them really know you, I think that's the exact same thing as we're learning from, from inclusive environments like the Rise School and, mm -hmm. and when 
kids are allowed to just show up and be themselves and they're supported in that way. I think that's what makes it all work and what all the kids gain from an environment like that where it's like everyone's telling the truth. No Mm -hmm. one's pretending Mm -hmm. that everyone needs to be the same. We're not raising a bunch of sheep. Mm -hmm. Adults are properly trained in behavior strategies, right? Adults are properly trained to understand what children are most likely trying to tell you through their behavior. You know, I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's probably easier to recognize or to be trained on this when you're dealing with kids that have differences that have disabilities because you don't yeah. even expect them to name their emotions. You don't mm-hmm. even expect them to know how to exist in the world when they have so many differences and and life is so much harder. You can see it so clearly, but I think it's like it's a metaphor for for all of our kids because mm-hmm. all little kids are learning how to be alive. Exactly. Right. And the part of their brain that is the most developed is that emotional part of their brain. And so quite often they don't know how to verbalize however it is they're feeling. And so they mm-hmm. act it out. They mm-hmm. act it out. And all behavior is communication. So when the adults are trained to start thinking, this is not a bad kid. This is not a kid that's trying to hurt other people, push people's buttons, be mean and nasty. This is a kid that's struggling and needs my help. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable what that does for kids. Mm-hmm. I just feel like every kid should be should have that kind of at least an early school. I mean, I in a perfect world, Every kid going all the way up through their education, you know, whether it's 12th grade or whether it's preschool, would have adults trained in behavior strategies, Mm -hmm. not just how to teach math and science or how to diagram sentences, whatever the hell that even means. (laughs) Like, why do we, why do we even need to know that? Um, And that's just not the case, you know? So like, you were a trailblazer (laughs) to have chosen this school, really. You know, looking back, it just changed the course of Elliot's life so much. And I had, I didn't know what that course would be. You know, he was only 15 months when he started there. Um, but I could, he, he had such, you know, he's highly sensitive. He's the reason I joined Rise. And so I see him in, you know, a lot of the families and kids in mastermind and the experiences that they're having at school. And it's just so unfair that not every place could view kids, like you said, like without a label and with positive intent and trying to understand their behavior. He would have been so, so quickly um, labeled as, you know, disruptive, um, calls home, and he would have been put into a box. Yeah, this Absolutely. is a behavior. And now I'm just going to brag on him since I know <laughs> you never would. He's now just tested in. He's graduating public elementary school, the neighborhood school, mm-hmm. and he just tested in to the most prestigious private school <laughs> in Houston, which is almost impossible to get into. Like there's kids that, you know, it's almost like if you're a lifer, if you get in there and 
back in kindergarten, then you just stay and go all the way up. Mm -hmm. So there's very few spots in sixth grade and there's even fewer spots in ninth grade. And he just tested in to go to this super prestigious private school. (laughs) It's pretty unbelievable. I, you know, the thing I didn't, I also didn't know when I read your speech, I was like, wait a minute, because I've known Sarah for years and she came and and joined my mastermind years ago um, and started learning from me. And I didn't know this story, but I was like, wait a minute. It sounds like they were practicing conscious discipline at the school. And tell tell mm-hmm. the listeners what you told me. I didn't even know. Yeah, it was part of their curriculum. I um, mean, they would do parent and teacher trainings. Um, I loved all of it. Um, but I always had trouble... Um, translating it from the classroom techniques into the home because it's really a classroom management. It's about having a, it's called, called the school family and there's the safe place at school and all these terms and like the, you're safe, you're calm, you can do this phrase that one of the teachers would repeat to Elliot when he was going through a difficult transition. There's all these great techniques, but I could just never quite apply it to one-on-one with he, he and I during a meltdown at home. Right after that, I found Randy and I heard all the, um, I heard conscious discipline phrases and I knew that's what she was using, but it was in a way that I could finally translate it into the home. And I had never heard anyone using conscious discipline at all, much less in ways that spoke to me that we could employ it in the home. And I was, that was what drew me in. I was hooked. You know, it's interesting because a lot of teachers, that were trained in conscious discipline that actually taught at my kids' elementary school, they've returned to me once they've become moms. And even teachers who are trained in this, I think a lot of times will have trouble translating it to what what does this actually look like in your real life? It gets gunky, I think, to practice some of these new skills and concepts that are not the way most of us were raised. Um, when you're at home in your underwear with your actual children mm-hmm. and they're being yeah. annoying AF and acting their emotions out on the outside, the way they feel on the inside, mm-hmm. which all these concepts, like you learn these concepts, but when you're in the heat of the moment with people that you are in love with, but not at this moment Mm -hmm. in like with, it's Mm -hmm. freaking hard. It's hard to translate these concepts. And so I think that I have to say that when I started learning conscious discipline, I was just so blown away. And I was just so blown away by the concepts. And really it was the rebel tendency in me and the justice seeker that was like, well, yeah, every single child deserves to have teachers in charge of them who understand how to see them for the little human four-leaf mm-hmm. clover they are and and not to shame them and to create this beautiful environment in this school family and understand that kids have conflicts and to know how to mediate those conflicts in a way that you know, isn't making one kid feel like he needs to sit in the corner with a dunce cap on and feeling like crap about himself. Mm -hmm. Like all of the things I was learning, I was just like, I want my kids to have teachers that are trained in this. And so I became so passionate about that. But as I was learning these concepts, I was like, okay, wait a minute. This is a different way to think as an adult. Like, 
it helped me, you know, the neuroscience component of it. That's what made me so obsessed with learning about the brain and learning about Mm -hmm. myself when I was feeling triggered and what was coming up for me. So it really was my first journey into kind of this self-awareness piece, which is like, wait, when my kids are doing X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden I'd like have a memory of like, you know, so triggering for me when my, when Alec and Avery would fight, even just like little bickering fights or just be, you know, just, just not getting along. And then all of a sudden I, I remember I was like, I was teaching a class because of course, once I started learning conscious discipline, I had to start like teaching it to other people because I was just like so amazed mm-hmm. by it. So I was, I was mm-hmm. teaching a class and I remember I had all of a sudden got a memory of my mom saying, me and my brother fighting and my mom saying, that's it. You two can't get along. I'm out. I'm packing my bags. I'm just going to leave. And like that memory popped back up in my head. And my mom was not a yeller and she was a pretty genteel person. And I knew, like I knew even when she would say those things, like I knew she wasn't leaving us, but there, even just the threat of that was um, kind of traumatizing to me. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I connected the dots. Like when my kids are fighting because it's hard to live with people and your kids are going to bicker, they're going to get on each other's nerves. But why did I get such an intense reaction in my body? And so like connecting those dots, I was just like, okay, this is actually mm-hmm. so interesting, you know? And mm-hmm. so then I, I think I just like felt like I had to share stories like that. And I think it's the stories like that, that all of a sudden take it from something that you can understand conceptually and Mm -hmm. apply it to your own life. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, Because you're right. It's those triggers. That's the difference between being at home versus in the classroom. Um, Those You have to recognize what's going on internally with you in order to control or be aware of your responses that was really what I needed. Yeah. You know, look, teachers get triggered in the classroom and, and they're yeah. going to, but it's just different when you're triggered by somebody else's kid versus being mm-hmm. triggered by your own kid. It's just oh, so yeah. much more layered and complicated. And the fact that you had a conscious discipline preschool experience mm-hmm. for your kids and that they were able to experience this inclusive environment. And really they're they're conditioned not to have this ableism component to that. You yeah. know, like the like I love this story about where it actually was kind of reminding me of, you know, I've been obsessed with Judy Bloom lately after I watched her documentary. And, you know, the Judy Bloom characters, what you'll notice is it's not all wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow. She doesn't, you know, like I just, I read Deanie and like she tells the story, but she in no way makes even like the protagonist of the story, like nobody's perfect. Everybody's messy. Like the girl that is kissing Deanie's ass all the time at school, who's like a total tryhard you know, Deanie wannabe. And like when Deanie cuts her hair, she cuts her hair and she's always like hanging around Deanie's desk and she's on Deanie's nerves. Like Deanie's kind of a bitch to her, right? Like, like it, it's kind of like Elliot to Max. Like, you know, it's like he wasn't 
treating Max like he needed to have kid gloves with Max. He was just like, like if right. he, if Max did something that he, uh, some other kid would have done that he would have told the teacher, he was telling on Max. Like he just treated him yeah. like, it's not like now I'm going to raise these children who are always going to be mm-hmm. the ones that are so kind to everyone. And it's like, no, your kids get to be human right. and they don't have to be perfect and they get to be kids. And if Max is being annoying, then Elliot is like, hey, you're being annoying. You know, like, exactly. And that's the thing. Every, what I really, a huge takeaway for me was that every kid has their own differences, even if it's not obvious. And parents who go around thinking that their kid is just a slice of perfection, their kids are missing out, people around them are suffering. Like it's just such a disservice to them for everyone to not look around and realize we're all different and to accept and be understanding of everyone for who they are, even from such a young age. And more and more adults are getting diagnosed with, you know, autism spectrum disorder. It turns out they've had these, you know, their whole life and they've wondered, you know, why they feel different or act different. We're all just on a spectrum of differences. A hundred percent. And I think that unfortunately what most people, you know, experience is that when you're different or when you're messy and other people shame you, right? Rather than just show up for you. And Mm -hmm. the thing about when you're messy, okay, and you're a kid and you make mistakes, it's like when Elliot went through that phase where you – was it Elliot, I think? Like he went through a phase where he was hitting? Yeah. I'm sure there were consequences. Like they were focused mostly on the skill of saying hi, right? And so they taught him Mm -hmm. that useful information. And I'm sure that – they got to a point where they're working on it. They're working on, hey, you wanted to talk to so-and-so or you wanted to play with so-and-so because this is very conscious discipline and you forgot the words to say, hey, can I play? Is that what's happening? Right. Did you want to play and you forgot the words? So that is practicing positive intent with kids. That's what it looks like. It's basically saying, yeah, you forgot the words, meaning you screwed up, you hit the kid (laughs) and you forgot the words to just Mm -hmm. say, hey, can I play too? So Mm -hmm. you forgot the words. So let's practice it now. Let's practice it now. So role-playing is a huge part of conscious discipline. Mm -hmm. So we can do that. So the way it looks in your own household at home is most of the time we just focus so much on what the kid did wrong And what we focus on grows. Then we get more of that wrong behavior. And when we shift into applying things like positive intent, wait, 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 something's going down here. Wait, did you just want to play and you just forgot the words to ask? And so you, you hit to let them know, hey, what about me? What about me? Am I getting in this right? And the kid's like, yeah, I wanted to play too. You're like, okay, that makes sense. So what do you say when you want to play? Practice with me. Okay, I'm playing something. Now you come over and you, or you play something and now I'll come over. Hey, hey, excuse me. Okay, now ignore me. Like the kid would keep ignoring me. Excuse me. Um, I'd like to play too. Can I play? Wait, why are you not looking at me? Look at me. Look at me. I, I really want to play too. I'm going to go over here and play something else. When you're ready to play, I I would love to play too. Please let me know. 
See, then you can walk over, you can do something else, but you've let that kid know, I want to play too. I want to play too. And so then you go and what if you just played right here next to him here? So I'm just going to play here next to you and you keep playing and ignoring me. And then when you feel like it, you're the other kid, you show me that it's okay to play and I'll just be patient over here. Okay. Now Mm -hmm. it's your turn. It's your turn and I'll be the kid you want to play with. When we get into the practice of incorporating that role play, well, now we're giving our kids useful tools and skills. And at the end of that, right, and I'm sure they did this at school, they probably, you know, said it is not okay to ever hit another child. This is Mm -hmm. a safe place. You have to be safe. You have to keep your body safe and other people's bodies safe too. So when the hitting, when you forget, when you have an oops moment and you forget, we're going to have you go over to your safe spot until you can remember these very important rules so that everyone Mm -hmm. gets to be safe. So that's a difference, like conscious discipline using that safe zone. And at home, I teach it as, you know, I always call it the calm down spot. It's like, this Mm -hmm. is the place where we know you're going to be safe. And other people are going to be safe. And it's different than timeout because it's like, and when you're ready, you know, when your body has calmed down and you know you're going to be safe and other people are going to be safe too, then you can just come on out of your safe zone and and let us mm-hmm. know, right? So there is always a boundary. It's not just all fluffy, fluffy, fluffy. Mm-hmm. That is a consequence. And I've been saying lately you know, mastermind parenting is different than a lot of these gentle parenting programs because I do believe in consequences. And I I really learned this from, from conscious discipline. And I know that you had some thoughts about some rant that I went off on. <laughs> and I don't even remember what rant it was in our group about, about the gentle parenting stuff, but I would love to know your thoughts on all that. Yeah, you, I, you were talking about gentle parenting and how it's the, a thing now. Um, this term is thrown around and that there's a difference between gentle parenting and, and acknowledging your kids' feelings and emotions and all those important elements. Yet also you have to be the pack leader, the person who m- helps your kids feel safe by implementing boundaries, sometimes consequences. But that other element is missing from um, a lot of these gentle parenting experts and philosophies and and that component of it is so critical. And um, I was just observing this weekend with my sister. She has three kids under five, five, four. They're like 15 months, 18 months apart. So like five and almost four and a one-year-old. And she is a big, gentle parenting person and has a really hard time being a pack leader and enforcing boundaries. She And she is in a really low place right now because I think the kids are doing, they're actually doing well. But I think she's not feeling good about herself mm. because I think, I think what also happens is sometimes the kids who don't have that pack leadership, they, they feel unsafe. They, they end up being more out of control and, or the parent just always feels like they are losing because 
they don't feel like they're making any progress with their kids. And they're like, I'm doing all this gentle parenting. I'm acknowledging all their emotions and I'm completely drained and exhausted and end up feeling like they're doing it wrong Mm. because they're too afraid or they've been told they can't and they shouldn't you know, set some boundaries sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what really struck me about her. And I felt, I feel really bad. I think the way that she's parenting is really leading her to down during a really hard time. in life. Yeah. It feels, it feels disempowering. And I think that, you know, I've noticed it even with our masterminders and, you know, because I've seen really skilled, gentle parenting professionals, I hear their energy. They do know how to have boundaries. It's just that embodying that pack leadership that I talk about, which is really like, I'm the mama. I got this. Yeah. Like no monkey business. We're not doing that. Like when you've got a kid that is totally dysregulated and in the sandbox and hitting other kids, like going over and being like, you were really frustrated. You're really frustrated. Like, Like at that moment, We've got to keep safety first. Safety is our number one priority. We will talk about feelings once everyone is safe. And a human that is that dysregulated in their nervous system, they can't freaking hear you, right? It's not the time. It's like read the room. And I think that's where a lot of times a lot of these, these things that make sense conceptually and make sense from a psychological perspective, I think we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater a little bit where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Parents job, we're the pack leaders. We're keeping everybody safe. We're keeping our people safe. When there's monkey business and and all of a sudden somebody's had an oops moment, we got to disrupt that situation. We've got to change the environment and change that child's state. So when you see a little kid who's all of a sudden like throwing sand, hitting another child, you go and you swoop in and you pick your child up and you take your child to a different spot. And then one-on-one, before you start talking about feelings and all that other stuff, which I'm all about, like, yes, we want to teach our kids that they are allowed to have all the feelings. All the feelings are allowed. And number one job is safety. So like, then all of a sudden you take them to another spot and you hold them and you take some deep breaths and you're just, you're like, I'm right here. We're just going to take it down a notch. We're just going to take it down a notch. But I was playing. I want to play. And we're not even looking. We're not making eye contact because that feels like on a primal level, that feels predatory. Maybe we're from behind. Maybe we're holding my lap or being a human weighted blanket, right? But like having the confidence to know I can follow my instinct. And when my kid is being the Sandlot bully, that feels terrible. And I feel judged and they're, I know they're getting judged. So I need to swoop in, grab my kid, take them to a different spot, hold them, make sure I help their body to calm down. And once their body's calm, like I'm thinking clearly, they're thinking more clearly, and I let them know then we can talk about feelings. Something was going on. You were really frustrated. You didn't like something. And then we apply positive intent. So like putting these things into practice, but I think that we're so, so many of us who are like, no one ever let me talk about my feelings. I was just shut down. 
And so we want to be that super parent where we're the parents that talk about all the feelings, but we're forgetting our number one job is to make sure everybody is safe. And when you have a kid that's hurting other people, including you, when they're out of control, when they're flailing like a wild animal, no one's safe. No one's safe. So we, so we got to keep them safe. We got to get them to safety. And I think that is where it's missing the mark. And when we start to step more and more and more into that version of mama bear, right. And we're really focused on keeping the people safe. And then we get to feel confident. Like I'm the mom who makes all my people feel safe, right? Like the mama's here. It's a huge confidence builder. And I just think that a lot of these programs that I totally believe, like 99% of it, I am aligned with. But there's this tiny little piece that I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to bring some of this mama bear fierceness back into it, which is like, uh uh-uh, this is not okay. This behavior is unacceptable. We're moving. Sand playing is over for now. Let's go. And then we go and we and we help the person calm down, but it can't. In that moment, that pack leadership piece, I think, is so hard. I think it's so hard, especially for women, because most of us don't feel that confident to show up in that way, like to have the boundary with your friend where you're like, no, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the luncheon and I love you. And please come on, on the podcast yeah. and read that, read that amazing speech. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. We're just gripped with fear, right? That we can't tell our friends the truth or they won't be our friends. We can't be firm or pack leaders with our kids or we're going to scar them for life. Yeah. Like these messages. And the more that you do it, because I've been doing this too in my personal life and business life and with my kids. And the more you do it, the more you realize that it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. And it builds your confidence. And my relationship with my boys is so strong because they trust me. And I'm far from perfect. And I have plenty of imperfect moments and explosions and yelling. But we're all trying our best. When you show up as that pack leader, though, you build trust and such a strong relationship. And I think that more moms could experience that. It's just truth telling. Yeah. Right? Like even when you show up in the moments where you're like, knock it off, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? When the boys are fighting and it's been a day and you've seen a million patients and you've recorded (laughs) a podcast with me and then you're also the mom who's going and picking them up in the Houston heat, sweating your ass off and then you get home and then they're, it's like almost the end of the school year and they don't want to do their homework and this one wants to play outside and this one won't stop touching them and you're like, enough. Right? Like also having the confidence to be like, they're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And they know you're not tiptoeing around them. You're telling the truth, which is, I'm a mom right now in this moment, and you guys are being freaking annoying. Like, you don't have to tell them they're being annoying, but they can tell that you're like, yeah, enough with the monkey business. It's not happening. And they're like, ah, she's telling the truth, just like how. Our early conditioning mm-hmm. at that school, all of our classmates that had Down syndrome and autism and all these other, like, mm-hmm. they just told the truth. They just showed up exactly as they are. I think that's so key, the truth telling, because kids know. They know everything. We're never hiding anything mm-hmm. from them. If you think you're hiding something, they know. And it does. It makes you so much closer when you're your real self, even with those imperfect moments. And I agree with some of these 
some gentle parenting that doesn't have that other aspect to it, it actually erodes that trust because your kids don't really believe that you're showing up as your real self. There was one example with my sister that really stuck with me. We were in our pool swimming and her five-year-old, she didn't want her five-year-old to go down the slide because she felt like it was unsafe. And so she told him it was broken. And I didn't know that she had told him that off to the side. And so he came up to me and he asked me if he could use the slide. And I said, yes, sure. I said, you're welcome to. We only we have these two rules about the slide. You can't go up until the person at the top is down. And um, I think, or maybe I just said we have one rule. That's our rule. And so he's like, oh. <laughs> I don't remember what the second <laughs> rule. Second we rule. have two rules, but I can't remember what the second rule is. <laughs> um, and so he's talking, talking, and he was kind of like just talking to me a long time about the slide instead of just going over there. And he was like, so I can really use it. And I was like, yeah, it's totally fine. <laughs> and then my sister came over to me. She was like, oh, no, it's broken, isn't it? I was like, no. She's like, oh, yeah, you told me it was broken last week. Like, it was just this whole, like, confusing thing. And I was like, oh. And I was like, I'm not going to lie to him. <laughs> like, it just felt, mm -hmm. it was such, a, such an obvious example of actual lying. But it just felt so, in an effort to not have to have him have big emotions, sometimes she, she would resort to just, like, you know, little white lies or little bribes. And it just really erodes trust. Okay, so we're going to end this on that. And Judy Bloom, she said the same thing in her documentary. Like, why were the Ju Judy Bloom books so popular and have been so popular for so long? And they are the most censored children's book. She's the most censored children's book author. And something she said in that documentary was, I have total recall of how I felt as a kid and what happened in all my experiences from third grade on. And the thing that used to bother me so much was that it seemed like the adults had so many secrets mm -hmm. and I just wanted them to be honest with me. I wanted my questions answered and I didn't know how to get my questions answered because the adults were, there was so many secrets. I felt like they were always lying. And so this, you know, when I started writing my books, I wrote from the child's perspective, like how I felt when I just wanted my questions answered and I didn't know how to get them answered. And so these books really serve that purpose for kids. Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. Yeah, very much. So good. Okay. As always, we could talk all day, <laughs> but you've got, we got to get back to work, <laughs> real work. Oh, this is the real work. Yes, this is the real work. Okay. Love you to pieces. Thanks for being on today. Love you too. Thank you. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Thanks for listening today, guys. I hope you picked up some tips, tools, maybe some baby steps for creating more balance and boundaries in your life. And I just wanted to let you know, if you want to continue moving the needle forward in creating this for yourself, having a happier household, I want you to go to my website and check out mastermindparenting.com. We have three beginning programs. And if you need some accountability and more support, then please look for the one that would be a good fit for you. 
Um, and as always, we're on all the social channels under Mastermind Parenting. On Instagram, it's Mastermind underscore Parenting. Um, and, you know, periodically I do pop up on different Instagram lives, Facebook lives, where I give you teaching and coaching. And I love engaging with you live to help you help your strong-willed kids so that they can feel better because when they feel better, they do better. And um, I love, love, love getting to know you guys. So thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Super, super appreciative.